All right, welcome back to the Revelation Podcast number six. It is so hard to believe that we are in our last yeah. two weeks. Uh, we it's have gone by week. fast. Oh, man. It's been fun, though. Yeah, it's been really good. So we are excited. We are going to be looking at chapter 17, 18, and a little bit of chapter 20 this week. And uh, we just want to get you in the in the right mindset here that we are going to probably be challenging uh, some of your preconceived ideas, theologies around the end times as we have this conversation today around judgment, the end of the world. Um, but that's okay. Like we yeah. challenged ourselves as we looked at it and we're inviting you into that same challenge, into that same conversation because uh, there's a lot of debate and there's some things we're going to talk about today that you might believe or have accepted that might not actually be scriptural. And so we're going to get into that. Um, and as we look at this conversation in 1718, the reason why it's so important is we want to make sure that we're setting ourselves up for actually understanding what Jesus is revealing to John in this vision and revealing to us yeah. as a church. And and the reason why that's so important is if you think back to uh, when Jesus came, there was this uh, whole messianic understanding. So rabbis and priests and the teachers and and all of the Jews had this very clear idea of what it was going to look like when God came to earth and set up um, his messianic uh, kingdom. Yeah. And how, you know, they're going to cast out the Romans or the Babylonians, cast out whoever the oppressor was and set up this earthly kingdom and rule over the world from Jerusalem. And they were prepared for that. And then Jesus came as this innocent child through mm. a poor family and set up a spiritual kingdom that looked nothing, nothing like what they were expecting. Um, and so most people missed it. Yeah. And that's been, you know, and, and we say, well, how could they miss it? Like it was right there in Isaiah and it was right there in yeah. Amos because it was how they were interpreting. It was how they were setting up their expectation for what the scriptures meant. And so as we look at the end of the age, as we look at the end of the world, as we look at our eschatology, we have to be careful that we're not setting ourselves up for missing what Jesus is doing in the present and to come because mm -hmm. we're so caught up in what we want it to look like and what our expectations of that has to be. Yeah, we just want to be open-minded and let the text speak for itself as much as possible, really. Yeah. Um, try to leave our preconceived notions at the door and really let it speak as much as we can. Yeah, so let's let's dive in here. Uh, we're looking at chapter 17 and 18, and if you look at the headings there, and just to be clear, because we're going to mention this a little bit later, like headings are a newer thing, Yeah. Uh, as are chapters and verses. Like these were written as letters, and if you've ever written a letter, which I'm sure you have, you didn't chapter and verse and put headings on your letters. Yeah. Uh, maybe a school paper, but not a letter, right? And these are letters, so um, these didn't originally have these. So these breaks are put in there by scholars who feel like this is a good way to help us understand this letter, mm -hmm. but uh, they all flow as one letter. And so we see this um, in chapter 17, 18, this, this conversation around what's labeled as the great prostitute mm -hmm. in the New Living Translation and the fall of Babylon. And so it's really important for us to who who is the great prostitute and yeah. how did Babylon fall? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so in chapter 17, um, one of the angels who poured out 
one of the seven bulls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. And one of the things that we've been talking about before is when it talks about committed adultery with her, um, oftentimes there might be some sort of, you know, like sexual sin involved, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. A lot of times it's using that kind of adultery metaphor like it does in the Old Testament to mean that you've worshipped other gods instead of the one true God. Yeah, there is a a close tie in the scriptures between adultery and idolatry. Yeah. And they sound very similar, and to um, to the understanding of the scriptures, they are very similar. They And sometimes they are interchanged. Um, to fit the context and help us understand, to create a mental image of what's taking place and how we very quickly move into exalting ourselves or exalting others yep. as God rather than Jesus yeah, and exactly. God himself. So. Um, so it says, The angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns, and blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she had a gold goblet full of obscenities and impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. So John has the this. what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Babylon the Great. And so this is when we talk about the prostitute, um, the great prostitute. This is who it's referring to, this woman who's sitting on this scarlet beast that is, you know, again, it's a crazy beast. It kind of is reminiscent of the beast we read about in Daniel chapter 7. And the name that's written on her forehead is Babylon the Great. And... It's interesting because, again, thinking about to the historical context when this was written, this was written in a time when Babylon was no longer ruling. Mm -hmm. And so this could be confusing for a lot of people uh, because it was the Romans who were in power at this time, right? Um, Mm. So you could ask the question, like, why does it say Rome the Great? Why does it say Babylon the Great, right? Because you can make fun of somebody who's no longer in power. (laughs) It's Uh, true. But making fun of the person who is in power could not be good for you. And uh, so this idea uh, of Babylon the Great uh, really is a clear reference to the people hearing this, that that, uh, John and Jesus are referring to Rome. Mm -hmm. Um, But Rome saw itself as the pinnacle of civilization, right? And even people in the churches, even people in that time— uh, you know, these Christians, they, they live their daily lives as, as merchants, as laborers, as scholars, as, as a variety of people who worked in the world and saw the, the beauty of what Rome had accomplished, but still also remembered back to the greatness of Babylon. I mean, yeah. it wasn't all that long ago that Babylon had fallen. Yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of context and reminders to what had been accomplished. Rome now was in charge of the area that Babylon once was. Yeah. And really kind of like throughout the Bible, Babylon is used as kind of this archetypical kingdom that's set up against God. It's like trying to get all the benefits of God's kingdom, but going about it in the completely wrong way. Um, You know, you think about the Tower of Babel. uh, That's, Mm -hmm. you know, the city of Babylon, really. Um, Mm -hmm. So it goes back to Genesis. And then obviously Babylon plays a huge part 
in all the prophets and the warnings and Jeremiah and Isaiah and those um, it's, you know, it looms larger in their consciousness that, you know, Babylon was a really bad empire that, that persecuted mm. the people of God. And so yeah. talking about Babylon here, as you've said, you know, you can't come out and say that Rome is this terrible empire. He, you know, um, Revelation is in large part a critique on uh, the Roman Empire, and it's kind of this political critique. Uh, but again, like you were saying, you have to kind of be creative in how you talk about it. Yeah, and so what's fascinating about this, going back to the Old Testament aspect, is that um, there were two nations that God used to judge Israel, mm. uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the Assyrians were actually seen as an instrument of judgment. Hmm. Um, it's where Nineveh was, and they actually uh, were the ones who took into exile the top 10 tribes. Babylon only took two tribes into exile, but Babylon took the tribe of Judah, which was the yeah. largest tribe, uh, and the tribe that remained. And yet Babylon, Assyria was seen as judgment. Babylon was seen as judgment, but also a seduction. It brought the Jewish people into a culture where many of them integrated into Babylonian lifestyle and very few were seen as a remnant. And when there was a return from exile, um, it was very, very complicated and not everybody returned from exile. Hmm. So there's this very clear imagery that Babylon has a seduction to pull people out of their calling to be a part of God's people. Yeah, that's really good. And uh, we talked about this in a previous episode, but it talks about the seven heads of the beast represent the seven hill hills where the woman rules. And that's, again, this reference to the hills of Rome. Um, so that's another reason why we would, you know, identify it with kind of Roman rule. Um, yeah. And then in chapter 18 and 19, we really get this uh, kind of, you know, pretty long description and depiction of this kind of the fall of Babylon. Mm -hmm. um, so this is really kind of what most of us would think of as the final judgment where God is going to come and fully establish his kingdom on mm -hmm. the earth. Yeah, and what's so interesting about this is we know that it that Babylon now represents Rome. And in our current culture today, like Rome is a city, it's not a state, right? Yeah. There is now Italy that Rome is a part of. Um, but there is this this understanding that the kings of the world, this is in verse 9, who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her tried remains. They will stand at a distance terrified by her great torment. Mm -hmm. So the world that has been seduced by all that Rome represents, the adultery, the idolatry, the drunkenness, the debauchery, the, the cursedness, the stepping outside of the will of God, now the entire world is seeing the judgment and the pain and the agony of, of falling into mm -hmm. that, that trap, if you will. Yeah, for sure. And again, it's this idea that they're mourning because they've been seduced by mm -hmm. the way that she goes about um, kind of securing power. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it talks about how they're, you know, it's going to be bad for them. They're no longer going to be able to trade. They're no longer going to be able to benefit from the corrupt systems that they had relied on to gain power. Yeah, and carefully stepping into the current age yeah. is a reminder to ourselves as Christians, what is our calling, mm -hmm. right? Is our calling to um, 
to do whatever it takes to succeed in political power to mandate our arm and perspective of morality mm-hmm. um where where is our call as christians to step into the governments of the world and have influence yeah. or political power um and that the great caution of how quickly and easily it is to be seduced by babylon yeah by this idea of political power yeah and i mean we see that all over the place in our culture and you know even thinking about the last four years and all of the things that have been going on in the states with Mm -hmm. trump and how um, a lot of people in canada and other places really struggle to understand why christians would back him when Mm -hmm. you know it seems so obvious that he has all these moral shortcomings Mm -hmm. and you know there's different perspectives and different um ideas about you know it's definitely true that you know as you were talking about in the old testament like uh, Cyrus the Great is called like the Messiah, right? He's yeah. called the Anointed One, yep. and God uses him for a specific purpose. Yep. And so, a lot of Americans uh, clung to that passage and said, "Oh, God can use anyone," right? Like, which is true. It's true, yeah. Like you know, God could speak through a donkey. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a reference to Balaam. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, b- but even moving forward from Trump now into Biden. I see the same thing happening yeah, just from the other side. For sure. And it, again, it comes back to this. We're putting our hope in the political powers yeah. that are in control. And Jesus is telling John here, the political powers that are at hand are coming to judgment. Yeah. And they're coming to judgment not by Christian hands, not by Christian politics, but by Jesus himself. And mm-hmm. so we need to be very careful how we get caught up into um, government powers because it's very easy for us to become drunk on the wine of political power. Um, yeah. And that that's what's going on here. Like these great kings of the world who I'm sure thought they were doing the right things yeah. in their own context, you know, um, were caught up in the adultery and the idolatry. And so there's a, a great caution here because the kingdom of Babylon's going to fall. And when John was writing this, there was hope in this, right? The people of um, of the churches, these seven churches in Asia Minor, um, they were losing their ability to trade. They were losing their ability to maintain a, um, a lifestyle. They were being kicked out of the trade guilds mm-hmm. um, because they were not adhering to Babylonian Roman rule, then they were breaking the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, because they were not uh, bowing down to Caesar. So they're becoming these seen as as rebels and causing yeah. all this trouble um, because they wouldn't give in to the political system, the political mm-hmm. power. But their the way they went about it wasn't by seeking more political power. Yeah. The way they went about it was simply saying. No, I see Jesus as Christ, yeah. and I will only honor him. And if it means that I will not make as much money or I'll be subject to persecution, then that's what it will be. And then their hope was for a future where Jesus would bring judgment, not when they brought judgment, but when Jesus brought judgment. Yeah. And that's, I think, really, really good and really relevant for us today. You know, if you think about the situation these people were living through, is a lot worse than what we're going through and how we might feel marginalized by our culture and 
But the main message of Revelation isn't that you need to do whatever it takes to gain power. Mm-hmm. Like the message is that Jesus is already in control and you need to trust in him and worship him and make sure that you are living in a way that identifies you as one of his followers. And this is going to bring up something that we're going to chat about in a little bit. I, we're going to really get into some theology that's going to mess with our heads a bit <laughs> uh, a little later in this podcast. But something that, that we're, we're skirting around here that we really want to probably should bring to the forefront yeah. is the difference between North American theology and uh, the global third, as, they, as it's called, or the global south. Um, North American theology has greatly separated itself from the rest, the theology of the rest of the world. Hmm. Yeah. Um, our perspectives uh, on what it, life should be like, what is persecution, what is um, the the messianic call, what who are the people of God, all of that is framed very differently in North America than it is in the rest of the world. And so our theology. Um, Sometimes what we hold as as truth, the rest of the world looks at us and go, oh, we see that different. Um, hmm. And so part of what we've done is we, you know, we've looked at some readings that are from theologians outside of North American theology. Um, you know, some of our brothers and sisters who have experienced persecution in a different way, who see these texts in a different way, hmm. um, and getting a broader global perspective on what is taking place in this book and through understanding the scriptures in general. So when you talk about uh, taking a global perspective, um, just like hone in on what you mean by that for a second. Like, are you talking about how people from other nations probably aren't looking at like what's going on in our politics as like, you know, this is specifically the country where God's working, like, and you know, like, things, you know, revelations basically prophesying about the American election. Is that what you're talking about? Is that we get so fixated on us and what's happening to us and we're like, oh my goodness, like Jesus must have been speaking directly into like this political situation and we forget there's like hundreds of countries around the world and hundreds of different situations that are going on that are, you know, revelations speaking to them as well. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's a couple of key areas where I see this play out that, um, Sometimes it breaks my heart when I hear North American Christians talk about this. So the first is persecution. Mm. Our concept of persecution versus the idea of persecution in countries like uh, Nigeria, um, parts of Asia, China, uh, Indonesia, um, places, some certain places in uh, Eastern Europe, where uh, persecution includes uh, punishment by by jail, yeah. uh, physical uh, abuse, uh, or even death. Um, that's a totally different type of persecution than what we consider. Our idea of persecution in North America at its worst is bullying, <laughs> um, which is, I'm not saying that bullying is, is acceptable, but our, our concept of what is persecution is so vastly different that we sometimes misconstrue um, being challenged in our faith as persecution mm. um, when really we're just being challenged to stand up for our faith or challenged to understand what our faith really represents. So we need to be careful with that. Um, definitely around the political, like, you know, the North America, you know, 
um, the United States, Canada, Great Britain as superpowers. And so um, obviously the scripture of Revelations is talking about them only yeah. when it talks about these things uh, and the political powers that be. Um, one of my greatest struggles is when I hear about, you know, God bless Canada, God bless USA, we're a blessed nation. We are. We have so many things that we have been blessed with and gifted with. Um, but then we look down on nations that are less prosperous, nations that have less, and say, well, God must be judging them, God must be cursing them, Yeah. Um, when really God is doing amazing works through the church there. They just can't be broadcasting in it, and they look much more like the New Testament church mm. um, that is seeing people coming to Christ and living out faithful life in face of persecution, um, where we we can broadcast our faith openly here without really any retribution, but we struggle to follow Christ well and uh, in our North American culture. And so that's that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. We, we have this perspective of we are, we are it, and we are the center of God's call as North Americans, and yet God is doing something globally that sometimes we're missing out on because we're so yeah. narrow in our perspectives. Yeah, that's really good. Um, it's always a good reminder just to like step back and see the bigger picture because mm-hmm. it is, I mean— you know, that's what we hear about every day. That's the world we live in. And yeah. we forget there's this whole other, you know, global <laughs> there's, perspective. There's out there. 8 billion people on the planet yeah. Earth. And, you know, we make up a seventh, yeah. I think, in North America, if that. So, yeah, not many. Not much. Um, so we're kind of getting through Revelation 18, 19. And then at the end of chapter 19, we get this kind of picture from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Uh, the rider on the white horse. Um most people, you know, identify this with Jesus. And we get this picture of this, you know, what sounds like very final judgment. Um, you know, come, this is from verse 17. Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, general strong warriors of horses, and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Uh, I saw the beasts and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Um, so, you know, you get this kind of picture that there's this final judgment. Both the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into a fiery lake. The entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse. And again, that goes back to the vision of chapter one, where mm. Jesus has the sword coming out of his mouth. And so we get the end of chapter 19, which seems like it's talking about a pretty final judgment Mm -hmm. and then we get to chapter 20 and chapter 20 confuses a lot of people (laughs) chapter 20 uh we want to spend some time here and kind of camp here for a little bit because it's such a you know influential verse and it has divided the church in so many different or chapters sorry and it's divided the church in so many different ways into different camps of theology and so we thought that it would be appropriate to talk about that because it is one of the main questions really that comes up with revelation. Mm -hmm. So a big part of this conversation on verse 20, uh, comes down to the question. We talked about this, uh, in the podcast around the, the three sevens is, is revelation chronological Yeah. or is there overlap or, and then even going back to podcast two around symbolism, um, because 
determining on if you determine that this is chronological, then there is this thousand year reign that comes following this final judgment that we see in verse in chapter 18 yeah. and 19. If it's not chronological, then this thousand year reign can come um, as a part of or preceding or even including today. Yeah. Uh, and so the way we see this, uh, the, again, getting back into, uh, are you, do you see this in a preterist, idealist, futurist, historicist mm-hmm. way is going to affect how you read this? Is it chronological? Um, do yeah. the seven, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls, are they overlapping, describing similar things or are they seven or are they chronological as well? Um, how you see all of these things, what you've determined so far from everything we've discussed will lead to your understanding and interpretation of yeah. what's taking place here. Um, and so that's why there's such varied perspectives, because if you vary from one another on all of those other things that we've talked about and your understanding of them from yeah. the very beginning of chapter one till now, it's going to lead you to a very different conclusion from somebody else on what's taking place in chapter 20. Yeah, and so just in case anyone doesn't know, in chapter 20 what happens is there's an angel who comes down from heaven to the key to this bottomless pit, and he takes Satan and he throws him in chains into this pit for a thousand years. And it says, he throws him into the pit, uh, shuts it, and locked it so that Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And so we have this thousand years or this millennium. Um, And then after that, it says, I saw thrones uh, and people sitting on them and they were given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue. Uh, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or hands. They all came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. And then after the a thousand years come to the end, Satan will be let out of prison. He'll go and deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle uh, and then the de- and then we get into final judgment as we continue on to the end of the chapter twenty, and so we get this really really kind of unique passage where it talks about this thousand year period mm-hmm. where Christ is going to reign, uh, and this is the only place in Scripture where this thousand year period is mentioned, mm-hmm. and it causes a lot of controversy among people because there's different ways to interpret it. Yeah, and so there's a few background pieces that we need to have uh, as we look at this conversation, um, the historical background. Though as a side note, I do want to comment, if you've watched the Left Behind series or Thief in the Night or any of those, and you remember the guillotine part, right? That's where this is coming from, the beheading. Okay, the, I don't, the, I don't the remember idea that The part. guillotines, okay. Well, that's just a side note, like it has <laughs> nothing to do with what we're talking about right now. But um, So some history that we have to go into, uh, if you remember back to the beginning of uh, podcast one, we talked about how um, John is writing this book of Revelation and it's apocalyptic literature. And this is not the only book of apocalyptic literature. I mean, if it was, we wouldn't have apocalyptic yeah. literature because it wouldn't it be, a be a genre. Yeah. But, but there's all kinds of books around this and all kinds of genres. So this idea of a, a reign at the end when God would return and a reign at the end that would set up the final defeat of the arch enemy, uh, of Satan, of the adversary, 
Um, this is actually a prevalent idea throughout all of apocalyptic literature. It's, it's what makes it apocalyptic genre. Mm. Uh, it's the end of the world and how it comes. And so there's this idea in that, going all the way back to the Old Testament prophets, there are different passages in our scriptures and in rabbinical traditions, in commentaries that call this, um, make this a different length of time. Some mm. of them say it's going to be 40 years, uh, and they see it as a 40-year uh, judgment that is similar to the wandering in the wilderness that uh the um, Israelites faced, right? They were called out of Egypt. They wandered for mm. 40 years and then were supposed to be brought into the promised land. And so in the same idea, there's this exodus out of the old world, mm. 40 years of Christ reigning, and then brought into the new world, the new uh, idea. Um, some say it's 460 years, lining up with the idea of the return of exile from Babylon that we see in Daniel. There's also some rabbinic tradition around that in some of the other apocalyptic literature. And then there is this concept of the thousand years. Um, there's two parts here. One being that it is symbolic. Remember okay. we talked about numerology early on, right? And that numbers have specific meaning. Yep. A thousand being 10 sets of 10 has uh, importance in Revelation through uh, some other aspects, especially tying into the 12 12s leading to 144,000, the 1220, yeah. 120s. Um saying that this is not really a specific set of numbers, like it's not exactly 1,000 years, but it represents the perfect reign of Christ for okay. the perfect amount of time. Or finally, it could actually be a 1,000 years. Yeah, um, could be literal. It could be very literal, 1,000 years. Oh, and one more, it could be that it's already happening. Yeah. But that's going to get into the next conversation. Yeah, so maybe we should define at this yeah. point. Let's just do... Talk about the thousand years, then we'll get into. Yeah, um, absolutely. We're going to be talking about the rapture just to give you guys a little <laughs> teaser because I know y'all want to hear about the rapture. Um, so, yeah, you kind of laid out there's kind of three main ways to interpret this passage. Yeah. Uh, and they each have fancy names because that's what the people, ol- theologians <laughs> do. Yeah, that's what they do. <laughs> they like to define different terms. So, the three terms are premillennial, which basically, uh, Premillennial, you might have heard it pre-mill. This is probably the view that a lot of people who come from evangelical, like Baptist background mm-hmm. in North America would probably have grown up with. Yeah. And we'll get into why a little bit. It kind of has to do with mm-hmm. the rapture yeah. um, and dispensationalism. But this is basically the view that the return of Christ, so the second coming of Christ that's talked about throughout you know all the New Testament, it actually happens before this thousand-year reign of Christ. Yeah. And then, so there's a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then there's the final judgment. So when we talk about the second coming, and mm-hmm. we, re, you know, when Jesus is talking about, you know, him coming back and separating the sheep from the goats and things like that, there's actually there's actually implicitly a thousand-year period yes. in between those where he is going to be literally ruling on earth right. for a thousand years. So that's pre, pre-millennialism. Mm-hmm. It's, um still you know one of probably the most popular views in north North america America. yeah evangelicalism (laughs) Um, just give you guys context so for a lot of us like i know for me this would be the view that i would have grown up Mm -hmm. Um, not that i ever you know was like given like a lecture on it but this was just kind of the view i think that most people that i kind of implicitly picked up on yeah for sure i know growing up for me premillennialism was definitely 
Yeah, um, and you grew up in the States too, so. I did, yeah. And even, well, and I even spent time in Indonesia, but a lot of the missionaries there were mm. from North America and brought some of this theology with them. Um, so definitely was a part of the, even though all three were explained, this was definitely the one that was often upheld by yeah. some of the people that I looked to as mentors and teachers. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I definitely understand it. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just saying I understand it. Yeah. Um, but, and as we talk about this, just to be clear, when we talk about these millennials or millennialism, yeah. we're not talking about, you know, the generation <laughs> no, that's no, getting no. picked on by Gen Xers or Gen Z. No. Uh, that's a totally different conversation. That's about demographics. This is about theology. Um, when these terms were coined, they never thought that. Yeah. Millennial, <laughs> you know, it's just a term for a thousand, a thousand years. years. So, yeah. you know, if you think pre-millennial, it means that pre, before, Jesus is going to come back before that thousand mm-hmm. year reign that's yeah. talked about in this uh, chapter. So you have pre-millennial, so you also need to have post-millennial. Mm-hmm. So post-millennialism is the view that Christ's return will happen after the mm-hmm. thousand year reign. And so in this view... Um, at some period in history is basically the start of this thousand year period. And it's more so ushered in by the church. It's mm-hmm. ushered in as this period of a thousand years where the church has this kind of, um, you know, influence. And um, there's this kind of just really good period in history where there's all these good things happening. Mm-hmm. And it's primarily because the church is being the church and is actually being that salt and light mm-hmm. in the world. And that actually ends up leading to the end of the thousand years. That's when Christ's second coming happens. Right. And that leads into this conversation then on the thousand years. Is it symbolic or is it literal? Yeah. Um, And are we in a church age now? Yeah. Or is it still a thousand years to come and the church is just really ramped up its ability of demonstrating um, what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love e- love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Um, going back to that great commandment in mm-hmm. the church, really living out its fruition of being the body of Christ on earth. Yeah, and it's interesting. When I was um, reading into this, apparently a lot of the Puritans were post-millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they were coming over, and obviously they had a big part in founding America, you can kind of see in the ethos of America, North American culture, that idea of like, we are trying to like make a nation mm-hmm. that is like not, it's not um, officially tied in with the church, but we're trying to have those Christian principles and create a, you know, a country that is essentially going to be an embodiment mm-hmm. of that spirit of freedom. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting to see how, how each of these views affects how you actually view what your role is as yeah, a Christian. A big viewpoint of Puritans as they came over was the passage uh, where it says, we are a city on a hill, mm. right? Uh, a beacon of light for yeah. all around us, um, which definitely played into then their interpretation of Revelation understanding of this theology. Yeah. So. Okay, so the third uh, important view to talk about is uh, amillennialism. So ah just means no or no. none. That's why atheism, no theism, yeah, basically, yeah. same thing. So no millennial. Um, this one's a bit confusing. It doesn't necessarily mean they don't believe there's uh, a millennial. They're not just like, oh, we're just going to throw that chapter out of the Bible. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But they this would be the camp that thinks more along the lines that it's a symbolic mm-hmm. um, you know, period of time. And most people would say that the millennium actually started at Christ's resurrection. Yeah. That was the point at mm-hmm. which Satan was bound and 
cast down. Um, so obviously, there's been more than a thousand years yeah. since that happened. So they have to kind of interpret the thousand years symbolically. Yeah, and for them, they see the church age as the thousand years. The church yeah, age exactly. is when Christ is reigning through the hearts and minds of Christians to influence the world uh, in preparation for his return. Yeah. Um, and obviously, um, you know, J- Jesus talks about how he came to bind the strong man. And there's a lot of language in the New Testament that talks about how Jesus is now reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he's been given mm-hmm. power and authority, and he's given that to us. So you can see where they get that from. Um, and the, the tie-in of the, the continually using that phrase, it is finished, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Which comes up again in a little bit. but uh, Yeah, you know. um, more on the premillennial side of things, people would point to just that um, passage where it says, you know, Satan's in the pit so he cannot deceive the nations anymore until a thousand years were finished. A lot of premillennial people would read that and think, well, I mean, obviously we're not in the millennium reign of Christ because there's still so much deception going on of the nations. Mm-hmm. And we believe that Satan's still, you know, working in the world. So obviously this is not a present reality. So they would look to the future for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so as we get into this concept and this debate of premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism, uh, again, it really comes back to your expectation of what messiahship looks like on earth. Yeah. And is what we are experiencing now as Christ ruling uh, through the hearts of believers, is that an establishment of Christ's kingdom fully on earth? Yeah. Or is there more to come before his uh, return and what does his return look like? What does the what does it mean in preparation for the new heaven and the new earth, which is next week's conversation? Yeah. But this really sets up for it. Like if we don't have this context, then the conversation around a new heaven and a new earth it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, and it's important to note that all three of these views ultimately believe that you know in the second coming, like mm-hmm. that is the part that no one disputes that there Jesus is coming back to fully establish his kingdom. They just differ in how they interpret this thousand years and how that's going to relate to kind of the mechanics of his second mm-hmm. coming. And so you're probably wondering right now, okay, they keep going over these definitions, but what should I believe? It's mm, well, a great question. All three of these uh, are accepted by phenomenal theologians that we highly respect yeah. and regard. Um, and so I don't think I, like, I know I can't tell you which one I fully accept. There's some that I tend to lean into. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my theology on this is often changing as I continue to go deeper in my faith with God and as I continue to read the scriptures and allow them to influence my life. So we are not here to tell you, you must be premillennial or you must be postmillennial, you must be amillennial. We are just setting the table for you to uh, really dive deeper into understanding what God's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And we did try and look up if the Wesleyan Church has an official <laughs> position. And they don't, so we're okay. Yeah, we're okay to say that. <laughs> we won't get fired for being heretics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in less trouble than, than Daniel because he's up for ordination yeah, this year. So they're he's, like, we heard your podcast. <laughs> yeah, he's under more scrutiny than I am. So yeah. <laughs> um, you have you have tenure, so now you can do whatever I, you ex- want. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all good. So. Um, yeah, so it's, it is important, though, just to make sure that, you know, even if you do have a belief or if you've grown up with a certain belief system, like we were talking about how for us, we grew up primarily with that pre-mill mm-hmm. outlook. It's so important just to 
come back to the scriptures and try and let them speak for themselves as best as possible because we bring those filters with us to the text. And oftentimes until you hear how somebody else from another viewpoint interprets the scripture, you're like, oh, well, obviously it's talking about premillennialism here. Like how could it be anything else? Like it's just so black and white. And that's because you're just conditioned to read the text in a certain way. And then all of a sudden you hear a different viewpoint and you're like, oh, I never thought of it like that. Like, that actually kind of makes some sense. Like, and then you you feel like you know less at that point, but it's kind of paradoxical because really you know more. You're less certain, but you know more, and you're less certain because you know more, yeah. which is this kind of weird irony that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know it as well. <laughs> yeah. And so now that we've started to open this can of worms let's yeah let's really open her up let's let's, <laughs> let's rip it open let's rip it open so we are going to talk now about talking now talking now talking now about the rapture uh, that's my uh i guess italian coming out of me all of a sudden <laughs> Woo. Uh, we're going to talk about the the rapture and do i dare say it's not biblical it's definitely not in the book of Revelation. Yeah. And it's it's if it's there, it's barely there in the scriptures. And so we're going to talk about, because this is a, a newer theology as far as theologies go. Mm. And I, I want to be careful and hear me clearly. I'm not saying that the rapture is not going to happen or that it's not a thing. And there are different perspectives on the rapture, but it is a newer theology and it is a North American theology. Um, so we're just going to open that can of worms right there and talk about the rapture. Um, so there is a verse in revelation, revelation chapter three, verse 10. So actually before I say this, maybe we should just define (laughs) what the rapture is. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, so the rapture is basically the idea that there's going to be a period where Christians are basically going to be taken up out of the world. Mm Mm-hmm before the tribulations that are talked about in Revelation. Now, really, it's just they're taken up. The timing, obviously, there's debate about the timing because there's mm-hmm. debate about everything. So there's pre-tribulation rapture and post-tribulation rapture. And rapture, mid. Not rapture. <laughs> po- there's and pre, mid. mid, and post. Okay, so it's like the 3.5. Yes, So exactly. there's supposed to be seven years seven of years tribulation. Of th- known as the Great Tribulation, which Jesus does refer to. Okay, and yeah. then... So some people think that Christians, those who follow Jesus, are going to be taken up out of the world before that happens to be spared from it. Yeah, which goes kind of to that passage you're going to refer to in Revelation 3. Yeah. Uh, mid-tribulation is kind of based on the idea of the Exodus. There were certain plagues that uh, the Israelites faced with the Isra- with the Egyptians, and then the there were ones that they were spared from. Um, mm. so it kind of plays, plays into this mid tribulation, they'll experience some of the tribulation and then will, um, and then they'll be spared the last half yeah. of it. And then there's post tribulation, which is the tribulation ends, the millennial is about to start. And this one is the one that confuses me the most yeah. because they, you, you go through the seven years of tribulation, God calls you up into the clouds and then he returns you to earth for this, for the thousand year reign. Yeah. Um, Although I don't actually even know this. This is just a question. So depending on your view of the millennium, could you be mm. like a post-tribulation, you know, person, but believe in like amillennialism? So you just believe that like essentially there's going to be like the end or say if you're a post-millennialist, 
Like it's only really if you're pre-millennialist that that would you'd run into that. Like if you're a post-tribulation pre-millennialist, so if you believe there's going to be s- seven years of tribulation, then the rapture, then a literal thousand-year reign. Mm-hmm. Like that view seems kind of weird as to what you're saying. Yeah, it's like it, why would they get taken, taken out right before re- for the, before the return? And it it kind of works for those who are post-tribulation. Uh, on millennialists in the sense of they think of well they're bringing back down to the new heaven and the new earth like yeah. so it's like bringing up to change yeah the earth but even that's kind of kind of weak because post-trib still takes for a very literal reading of scriptures okay in certain areas and then all of a sudden it switches to a symbolic reading um so it, it gets really tricky though i mean people do uh because it is actually a thing to be any of these combinations yeah um but there are some that make it more challenging to understand than others um so yeah i guess we should give the background for why there is this concept of the rapture and then you know then have the conversation of should we how tightly should we cling to this idea of the yeah, rapture for sure um so basically you know the rapture is this idea that Christians at some point are going to be taken up out of the world before the second coming of Christ. Maybe that's like the most basic yeah, definition yeah. is that, um, you know, there's a distinction between when Christians are taken and the second coming when, you know, everybody else is raised from the dead and the new heavens and new earth and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So when you had said, you know, it's not in the book of Revelation, it, it's never explicitly talked about in the book right. of Revelation. So there's really kind of two passages in the New Testament that are really used to support this idea. Mm-hmm. And the first would be Matthew 24, and the second is First uh, Thessalonians 4. Um, so those are kind of the two chapters that are, yeah. you know, really used to support this idea. Um, before we get into really diving into those, it's probably good just to talk about the history of the rapture. Yeah, yeah, um, just give some background. Because when we talk about theology... We tend to assume that our theology has developed since the early church yeah. and since the time of the what's known as the church fathers, um, which were the earliest theologians. Mm-hmm. Um, and we usually go back to them as the basis for understanding our current theology and then how it's developed. This doesn't go back as far yeah. um, you know, as 100 AD. Um, it goes back as far as... Yeah, so... Um... <laughs> 1830 is really 1830 1830 is kind of when a lot of people point to as the first mention of this rapture theology now if you talk to premillennialists um obviously there's some connection there some people will say that like there were early church fathers who were premillennialists yeah Um, augustine they they point to yeah and like some of his writings and and, like irenaeus but yeah um i think there's a distinction between being premillennialist and talking about the rapture absolutely as we've been you know kind of discussing that they they are not as interchangeable as we would as we were made to believe growing up yeah they they can be separated yeah and that, yeah so that's an important distinction uh and so really there's this uh girl margaret mcdonald who i believe was just a teenager at the time like quite young and there was this revival going on in scotland in the 1830s and she goes into this kind of prophetic trance, uh, has this sort of vision, and she, you know, wakes up and says that she has received this revelation from God about this rapture. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she communicates this idea of the rapture really for the first time in 1830. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, she, not to say that she was a nobody, but she wasn't really influential. 
And so it probably wouldn't have really, you know, picked up or become popular, except for the fact that there was a guy named uh, John Nelson Darby who, you know, got word of it or was at that revival meeting. And uh, he was actually the co-founder of the Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren movement, which is a very influential kind of, you know, church denomination. Mm-hmm. Even um, still today. Yeah, yeah, it still exists still for broad. sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he hears about that idea, accepts it, and he's actually the one who brings it to America for the first time. Mm-hmm. Then it gets picked up by Cyrus Schofield. Which many people, if you grew up in the church uh, through the 20th century, 18, you know, have in the 20th century have heard of the Schofield Reference Bible. Yeah, and so he was the guy who wrote the Schofield Reference Bible, and it was actually the very first ever reference Bible, like study Bible. Before that, there were no study Bibles, and actually this was the first Bible in it that, you know, it had footnotes and study notes, but it was also the first one to have headings, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. And it was like super popular. Yeah. But in the footnotes, it promoted this idea of a rapture right. in specifically these two places. Um, so that was really influential in promoting this rapture theology. Uh, then, you know, someone called Dwight Moody. Dwight L. Moody. Yeah. D.L. Yeah. Moody. He was uh, the, you know, most influential evangelist in the first half of the 20th century. He started like Moody Bible Institute, which is still going mm-hmm. to this day. It's really. Yeah, the, probably one of the biggest trainers of missionaries around the world. Yeah, like huge, huge, huge influence. Um, he, you know, picked up this rapture theology and spread it and, mm-hmm. you know, promoted it. And, you know, he established all sorts of churches uh, using that sort of theology. And then around this time, there were different books that started to got written that mm-hmm. were really popular. Like Jesus is Coming was one of the really, really popular early ones. Uh, and then there was a guy named Billy Graham. You ever heard of him? Never heard of him. No. <laughs> so Billy Graham in the 70s, he adopted this rapture theology. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, he preached to like 100 million people or something. Oh my like goodness, mo- yeah. Probably more than that. I don't yeah. even know the number. Yeah. But and then those people shared with other people, right? Exactly. It, 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 it compounded. Yeah. And he wrote this book, Approaching Hoofbeats. Uh, and it was a popular book that was promoting rapture theology again. Uh, it's interesting, later in his life, he actually changed his theology around I didn't know that. the rapture yeah huh. yeah so that's interesting um so this is the 70s there's also a, a really popular book in the 70s called the late great planet earth by a guy named hal Lindsay. um so this is still before our time so this is kind of <laughs> ancient history for us but apparently it was all the rage in the 70s we yeah. weren't there to verify but <laughs> according to uh the book that i was reading this book was so popular that during the whole decade of the 70s, it actually outsold the Bible worldwide. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, so that's crazy. And again, it was promoting this kind of rapture, It really kind of like pre-trib rapture, mm-hmm. um, pre-millennialist view. Uh, and then we get to the 90s with the Left Behind series. And you probably, I, I think I you have more experience. Yeah, yeah I, w- I, was, I was a part of that. I've read... Um, so even though it was made in the 70s, I had seen Thief in the Night, which is kind of based on this Hal Lindsey okay. writing. Uh, but then in the 90s, um, there was the Left Behind series, uh, Tim LaHaye and, and Jerry B. Jenkins. Yeah. And... Um, it it was it was prominent in the church and it, even people outside the church were reading it. Um, it fell into this same idea of uh, the late great planet Earth. It was very dispensational, very chronological. 
Um, and it, it had this idea of the great tribulation and this rapture. Um, and I read all the adult novels. I read all the kid novels. Mm. I watched the movies. See, I watched the movies, but I didn't read the books. The movies were terrible. Uh, sorry. (laughs) They scared the bejesus out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe they scared Jesus into into me. me? I don't know. I think that was the idea. Scared Jesus into people. Um, which that's for a conversation for a totally another day. I'm totally against scare tactics evangelism. Um, but. Uh, in the Left Behind series, there is this very clear rapture moment yeah. when people disappear and airplanes crash because oh, pilots are taken and, and you know, cars, cars are, are crashing. crashing. Yeah, because like the whole these... world's basically melting down. Cause... Yeah, because Christians are gone now yeah. uh, in this great tribulation. But then there were some who were should have been Christians but weren't who were left behind to kind of be these become these witnesses anyway and uh, i think one of the main characters is a guy who's like you know would have said he was a christian and then he's the one who's left behind he's like oh, i didn't make it like what I the heck <laughs> i messed up my yeah. theology somewhere and there's Which, like you know pastors who are left behind and it's like a big deal because like what the heck why are you here you're supposed to be raptured out like, yeah, yeah yeah and then that gets into some really weird theology around what does it mean to be saved and accepting christ anyway yeah um that's again maybe another theology podcast but they were like hugely hugely it was, popular it was huge yeah i mean there was over over 80 million copies of these books yeah. sold uh so tons of people are reading this and they're very strongly pushed i mean the whole series was predicated on this idea of a rapture yeah and the great the tribulation and yeah. the, it's the left exactly the left i think yeah. uh if you go up into our church library and you want to read them i think we have like we, the whole series we do we have the whole series in yeah. our church library and it's not to say you can't read them um they're great just, novels they're good fiction <laughs> um just don't base <laughs> no. your theology off them right right Base them off the Bible. <laughs> Whoa, what a thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and be careful reading into the Bible what you're reading there. Yeah, right? um, for sure. That, that's one of those things we talk about a lens is it's very easy to get a preconceived idea from something else and then read it into the scriptures rather than allowing the scriptures to, yeah. to read to us. And we want to be clear when we're, you know, we're kind of joking and mm-hmm. laughing a little bit, but, um, you know, it is important to realize that rapture theology has only been around for like 200 years. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not correct. Right. Um, we're not saying it's not going to happen. Yeah. We're not saying that that is proof that, you know, it's not biblical. Like, you know, it could be that people were misinterpreting the Bible for 1800 years. What we are saying is that we, it should kind of give us pause. Like if that's our view and, you know, and we learn that it's only been around for 200 years, and for 1,800 years, Christians didn't believe that. It should kind of make us, you know, think, okay, maybe I should, like, re-examine what I believe. Yeah, and going back to this concept of the global church, much of the global church does not believe in the rapture. Yeah. Um, and we need to be very cautious of becoming arrogant as North Americans and saying, well, we figured this out, mm-hmm. get on board, instead of learning from our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing some ways a life much closer to what's taking place in the book of Revelation yeah, and their understanding of it versus our very blessed, yeah. um, you know, our very um, more moderate lifestyle and our desires of what this could be. Um, yeah, so maybe we should go into the yeah. two passages and just read them and then sure. talk about where rapture theology comes and maybe 
what we would think are maybe more um, faithful ways to read these texts that sure kind of uh, so we'll just be upfront we're not people who believe in rapture theology I, i'm i'm open to it as it could happen but i'm not a believer in it <laughs> yeah yeah i'm not like you know definite on anything really um but I would but, say yeah. that I think the evidence tilts the other way. Yeah. So you want me to start? I'll read Matthew 24 yeah, sure. and then leave you and we'll then discuss it. Yeah, sure. All right. So Matthew 24, verse 37 to 41. Uh, when the Son of Man returns, it was like it was in Noah's day. In, these, in those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Mm. Now, I played for you yesterday. Yeah. DC Talk. A DC Talk song. <laughs> Daniel did not know who DC Talk was. I felt I'm sorry. very old, very quick. <laughs> um, but they have this song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, right? Yeah. And uh, it was about this idea from this passage of, I wish we'd all been ready. You know, they actually sing these very, these two lines here yeah. um, as part of the song. Rapture's theology states that the person who's taken is the righteous. Mm. And so when they look at this passage, they kind of see it as like Noah being taken into the boat and taken away or this yeah. idea of, of calling out. But what's interesting about this passage, when we look at this idea of Noah's day, um, it, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings. People didn't realize what was going to happen until they were swept away. It was the unrighteous yeah. who were removed, not the righteous. Yeah, uh, And so the rapture is the... Antiverse, the reverse of this, mm -hmm. the expectation that the that when we read this, that the righteous will be taken. But when we read the broader passage here, and Jesus does talk about the great tribulation in Matthew chapter 24. Mm. But as we read the context here, the context leans more towards the unrighteous being removed than the righteous. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you can see how this verse was used to support that idea. Um especially 40 and 41, where it's like, oh, yeah, there's going to be rapture. The Bible says two men will be working in a field. One will be taken, the other left. And that's where the left behind title comes from. Two women will be grinding flour at mill. One will be taken, the other left. Right, and you've got to assume that it's the unrighteous who's going to be left because who, what righteous person wants to be left working, right? Yeah. Part of our, part of our theology, which we're going to get into next week, is this kind of expectation that when we go to heaven, we're not going to do anything, Yeah. Um, which is not scriptural either but yeah. that's for next week's conversation for sure but, also but this, it, it idea that, this idea right like heaven is this kind of like disembodied state yeah. so it's like well if they're taken away then obviously that's us because we're going to heaven right um which will again we don't want to jump the gun but we're going to be talking about that next week <laughs> yeah um but that plays into it as well this idea that we need to go up to heaven um and so obviously in a disembodied state like obviously the, the good ones are the ones who are going to be taken away because the world is evil and corrupt Which and so why would thinking. why would jesus leave the good people on earth right like right yeah so it it plays into the broader theology um and again this is why you can't just use one you can't just read this in isolation you gotta you know mm -hmm. you bring your whole biblical framework and this is why it is so hard to um you know transition your theology so you know if you're hearing for the, this for the first time and you're like 
you know, a little hesitant, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it's going to take time for you to look into it for yourself and make your own decisions, which is yeah. totally, totally good. Well, that's what we want. We want yeah. you to look into it for yourself and make yeah. your own decision. But we, if you're feeling pushback, that's a good thing. Go dive into that. Go yeah, deeper exactly. into that and, and look at it and look at the text. Because uh, as I said, like this idea, as you were saying about this whole like leaving the earth materialism, and we'll get into that next week, it's a very Gnostic belief all of a sudden, yeah. right? That the material world is bad. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's interesting that uh, little piece of when you talk about Noah and who was actually taken away, it changes how you read that verse. All right, so let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 4, 13, 18. It says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. And so right from the beginning, mm. uh, Paul's setting this up as the church is having struggles with the people who have died, the believers who have died. What's going to happen to them? Mm. Um, are they going to be raised or they've already died? So like, Right, because the expectation was that Jesus was going to come back while they were still alive. Yeah, they were expecting like they, a, a imminent return. They thought Jesus was going to come, what, nineteen hundred years ago? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, all of a sudden, they're writing because Jesus hasn't come back yet, and people are dying. Yeah, which goes back to uh, the chapter we just read, Matthew twenty-four, right before what we read is where Jesus says that like no one knows mm-hmm. <laughs> the day or the hour except the Father. So again, it's like. We always have to be ready, and that's part of the, um, you know, part of the moral, I guess, of that story that we just read. Okay, so, uh, for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. The Lord, for the Lord himself, will come down from heaven heaven without a with a commanding without with a commanding shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of god first the believers who have died will rise from their graves then together with them we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so 17 verse 17 is really the one that we want to focus on then we will be with the lord forever so encourage each other with these words. And so in this passage, really the, the verse that's taken, and this is actually, um, I believe, where the word rapture comes from is mm-hmm. from this verse. Yeah. And I think it's a Latin verb mm-hmm. um, to meet up in the air. I think that's the one. Or to be it, caught up. That's to be it. caught up. Yeah, yeah, to be caught up. To be rushed, to be caught up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it's this idea that the dead are going to rise and we are actually going to go up into the air to meet Jesus. And this is where that kind of, you know, we're going to heaven to be with the Lord theology comes from. Um, so what's wrong with this? Well, <laughs> That's there, the big question. Yeah, what's so wrong the, with that interpretation? The, there's a couple of struggles with this interpretation. One is, again, not knocking the Latin, but the Latin is built on a, a, a Greek text, yep. which has a totally different understanding of this. Two, it has this symbolism that refers back to um, when we look at the, the writings of Luke. And you have to remember Paul and Luke traveled together, mm. right? And so Luke relates in his writings 
um, that Jesus was taken up in the clouds. We call it the day of ascension. Yeah. And so as Paul is writing, he's relaying this return of Christ that very much reflects the ascension, that Christ has risen in the clouds, and now Christ is returning in the clouds. Yeah. Um, and so there's this 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 mixing together here of the these writings, these influences together. Um, and so we take this idea of caught up in the clouds, um, but really, it's much more about being brought into the presence, mm. and uh, yeah. and then being with the Lord forever. And again, we're going to get into some of this next week about new heaven and new earth, and yeah. and and where do people go now and that kind of stuff. But when we read this, to build an entire theology on a on a single verse of scripture mm-hmm. that you have to stretch to get to that theology. It's it's a very dangerous precedent. It's a very it's it's one that should at least cause caution to yeah. take a single verse and stretch it to mean something as complex and as large as rapture theology. Yeah, and uh, one thing that's I think really helped me is just understanding the context, historical context of this mm-hmm. uh, verse because. Um, it was the common practice that, say, if a king was coming back into a city, uh, once you realize that the king was coming back, what would happen is everyone would rush out of the city and actually kind of there'd be like an entourage or like a parade welcoming the king back into the city. Mm. So what a lot of people have said, and I think they're right, is that in this passage, when we're called up into the clouds, Jesus is actually coming down. And it says that for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. He's coming down, and then so what happens is we go up into the air to actually meet him and like welcome him back as he's coming to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. So are people actually in the air, like well, that's like ascending I, I don't know. Ladder, or is this like, I don't know. Yeah, I, that's it's. This it's again goes into how yeah. literally do you interpret the Bible? The Bible, right? yeah, yeah. Some people it's say, oh, hundred percent, we're definitely yeah. going up into the air. But then you get into the conversation of. Where is Jesus right now? Right. Is he up in the sky somewhere? Is he in the clouds? Um, I don't know. We have planes, so why haven't we found him? Yeah. Or is he in space? Like, you know what I mean? Like when yeah. we, when they talk about Jesus ascending, um, what does that actually look like? Um, I know one really famous New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, talks about how the way that he understands like heaven is almost that it's like a different dimension that we, you mm-hmm. know that Jesus is essentially like in another dimension and that dimension is the reality of heaven. Yeah, and so for me, I and I'll I'll lay my my cards. Yeah, I'll lay them on here. the table. I'll lay them on the table is uh is that I I tend to take this as a very symbolic mm-hmm. expression of the church welcoming Christ to earth. Yeah. Um because I mean we're we're on a global earth. Uh, mm-hmm. so how does that, that framework work? Um, and part of this, just my own struggle to understand certain physical yeah, I mean, aspects you know, of it. Even it's if you think theology, about, it's just my own mind. Yeah. I mean, if you think about there's people all around the globe yeah, and they can't all, you know, see where Jesus is coming from. And yeah. if they're all called up, up is like different directions depending on where you're at in the globe. Yeah. And so I see this very much. I mean, it's, it's, 
very symbolic of what Christ did when he came into Jerusalem and the people lined the streets in yeah. preparation and exaltation. Yeah. Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so I do believe there's going to be an element of that where the people are crying out, mm-hmm. save us, thank you for returning, blessed are you who's come in the name of the Lord. Uh, but I, I don't take the ushering up into the clouds as so literal. I'm more of a, of a symbolic, this is the church expressing and exalting that Christ has returned. Yeah, and I, can, I guess I'm kind of open to either <laughs> interpretation, but I think the big thing is um, that we would, you know, what they're trying to get at is that when it says we'll be with the Lord forever, mm. it doesn't mean that we're going to be hovering in the air with the Lord forever. It's actually the, like what you're saying. The idea is that we're welcoming his return. Yeah, at some point there is uh, the dwelling on earth. Uh, and we're going to, again, we keep saying this, we're going to get into that next week. Yeah. Uh, that is what we're going to be getting into this new heaven and new earth, uh, mm-hmm. concept and how that plays into even Easter yeah. uh, and Christ's return. Um, so we, we're, what we're getting at today, cause we are, we do need to wrap up our time here. I know this has been a bit, a bit of a longer podcast. We thank you for sticking with us yeah. here. Um, is we just want you to be willing and open to, as you're reading, uh, the scriptures to allowing yourself to be challenged in theologies that y- you may have as preconceived theology you might have been raised with yeah. and not throwing them out, but just being willing to work through them with fear and trembling, uh, you know, being willing to say, I could be wrong or I could have misunderstood or they could have misunderstood. Um, what is Christ really trying yeah. to do? Like, what is the call on us as believers and the call is a call of hope, knowing that this present age will come to an end, uh, where all of this striving and uh, political power will come to an end and Christ will reign, yeah. uh, is reigning, uh, depending on if you're an amillennialist or symbolic, uh, mm-hmm. different perspectives on that. But that's where the hope is found. If you're not seeing hope in the book of Revelation, yep. you're misreading it. You're misunderstanding what it's really about. Yeah. We all agree on, you know, really those big rocks. It's just a matter of how do we fit them together and yeah. the small kind of connecting details that a lot of there's a lot of discussion about. Yeah. Um, so it's fine to have that discussion. It's, Absolutely. it's fine to have it's that good. discussion. It, yeah. 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 I mean, Daniel and I chatted through this, and there was obviously disagreement, not even today, but like as we were preparing for this, mm. like, oh, I read this. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't know what I think about that. And yeah. I read that. Well, I don't know. Because there is a lot of debate. But yeah. the, what what makes this work is that, again, we come back to that agreement. Yeah, for on, sure. On Jesus. So. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us this week. And uh, as we said, next week, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it's and we're going to talk about the new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, and there's and the going to be a, a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. It's oh, going to yeah. be really good. So join us next week. Bye.